Thank you, Greg and company. Josh, thank you also for your ministry and leadership at the South Campus. We're thankful for you. Please pray with me as we turn to God's Word. Father, we ask uh, in your kindness, Lord, ever mindful and thankful that you have made yourself known, revealed yourself in your Word through your Son. We ask you would illumine our minds and our hearts to hear you speak this day, to hear your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In a recent issue of Rolling Stone magazine, Jeff Goodell interviewed Bill Gates at age 58, the richest man in the world. And toward the end of that interview, it was actually the last question, he asked a very good question, he he asked Bill Gates, do you believe in God? Great question. And Gates, after qualifying a little regarding science and admitting that science can't explain everything, he said this, the mystery and the beauty of the world is overwhelmingly amazing, and there's no scientific explanation of how it came about. To say that it was generated by random numbers, that does seem, you know, sort of an uncharitable view. I think it makes sense to believe in God. But exactly what decision in your life you make differently because of it, I do not know. I think it makes sense to believe in God, but exactly what what decision in your life you make differently because of it, I do not know. Not sure actually why it matters to believe in that kind of God, is what Bill Gates is saying. And in other words, God for for Bill Gates is is an idea, a notion, a concept, a theory. And and if if you hold to it, or if you don't, it really doesn't matter in life, in everyday life, in in the practical matters of life, in the decisions of life, in how you live. Now, compare the modern wisdom of Bill Gates, which I think in many ways is representative of an entire culture. Compare that with with Nehemiah's God, as we learned last week. His God is is not simply some idea, a, a notion of the human imagination. His God is a real God with real attributes and real character who's, who's acting in a very real way in history for his redeeming purposes. That's Nehemiah's God. And, and, and we see that that God, the God of the heavens, the God who is wholly other and transcendent, is also the covenant-keeping God, the personal, imminent God, the God who is near for Nehemiah. And so we saw last week how Nehemiah prays. He prays with adoration and confession and thanksgiving and And supplication, a request he makes, a request wholly consistent with God's redeeming work and purpose. And so for Nehemiah, knowing this God of heaven, this covenant-keeping God, really does matter in the decisions he makes in the life he lives, even in how he prays. 
And in the passage before us this morning, we will see a beautiful picture of this genuine faith of Nehemiah's in action now. In, in action amidst even insurmountable circumstances in what appears to be an, an irreversible situation. So my hope is as we, as we look to Nehemiah that, that we would see this God that Nehemiah knows so well. This God that he prays to, this, this God that moves him to action, that we would see him and believe in him so that like Nehemiah, we would be moved toward bold action for kingdom building. When we last left Nehemiah, he was, he was on his knees and he was praying. He was praying and he was waiting. We learned he was waiting for, for four months and praying for God's favor and God's success before Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And now with chapter 2, that day that he had been praying for has come. It's, it's, it's as if we're on the edge of our seats waiting to see what will happen now. Your prayer has been answered. It's before you, this opportunity, Nehemiah. The day has come, and the occasion is a feast. It's a king's banquet. There's wine and food and festive celebration. Let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king, Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So here's our setting in Nehemiah before the great king of Persia. The, the, the city is Susa, the citadel, the, the, the winter palace, one of three royal cities for, for Persia, for the king at this time. And and Nehemiah, we're told, is a cupbearer. He holds a prestigious position, a, a place of great honor in the Persian court. Because it, it, it's an important place because the cupbearer, 
needed to be thoroughly trustworthy, that his primary purpose was to protect the king, and he did so by guarding against poison in the king's cup, and and he sought to preserve the king's life, even at the expense of his own life. And in his profession, he would know the nature of poison, the sight of it, the smell of it, the the touch of it. And and he would serve the king in this way. And in so doing, he would would endear himself through confidential relations with him and his sovereign. And such, he had a position of influence, of great influence. It it would not be dissimilar to, say, uh, the chief speechwriter to the president of the United States or, or the chief of staff. In daily interaction and friendship, fellowship with a common purpose and goal in mind. That's the scene in which we see Nehemiah's faith rise to action. And as we examine it in detail, I I really want you to take note of three distinctives of of a genuine faith. A vibrant, vigorous faith. A faith in action. The first distinctive, quite simply, is love for Nehemiah. It's love on two levels. It's a love for God, and it is a love for God's people. And, and it's, it's Nehemiah's love for God that drives his love for God's people. And, and so what we begin to see as this passage unfolds in this engagement with the king is, is Nehemiah... Just we're noted very almost as a footnote, just simply he stops in his tracks as he realizes the situation, and it says that he prays to the God of heaven. Now this is the same way Nehemiah began his prayer in chapter one, where he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. See Those words are words of praise. They're words of adoration for the true and living God. And so now in chapter 2, when Nehemiah prays again, this time in short form because of the urgency of the situation, it, it recalls that same love and affection for who God is and understanding who he is. It really is a beautiful picture of genuine affection for God and fellowship with the true and living God. That's what we see in just a, really just a quick word in passing is what the text gives us, but it tells us everything about Nehemiah's relationship to his God. That his instinct is to pray. It's reflexive. Do you know that, God, that way? Is that your impulse, maybe in the midst of a difficult situation or even in the midst of a good situation, a place where you sense God's kindness and his grace upon you and and you simply just respond in prayer? That that the fellowship and the relationship with God, your fellowship, is such that that's that's your first impulse. Maybe you don't know God that way. Uh, Cyril Barber, in his... uh, in his study of Nehemiah, explains why some of us don't pray. He says the self-sufficient do not pray because they merely talk to themselves. The self-satisfied will not pray 
for they have no knowledge of their need. And the self-righteous cannot pray, for they have no basis upon which to approach God. Self-sufficient, self-satisfied, self-righteous. That's not Nehemiah. For, for Nehemiah, his sufficiency is only in his God. His, his satisfaction is ultimately in God and God alone. Even his righteousness is in God. I want to suggest to you that this, this very simple, short form of a prayer is not a formulaic prayer. It's not a foxhole prayer even or sending up some smoke, so to speak. It, it, it is... It is it is really an articulation. It is the impulse of a man who is captivated by the loveliness of God. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, in talking about uh, the nature of false faith and true faith, says this. He says that false faith can see the holiness of God, the wisdom of God, can even see the greatness and power of God and something of the love of God. But the one thing false faith can never see is the loveliness of God. He says true faith is captivated by the loveliness of God and wants to please God because of who he is. Not for what you get or what you might avoid. Friends, what, what, what that shows us here is is. is Nehemiah is captivated by the beauty and the loveliness of his God. He knows him that well, that intimately, that closely. And underneath his courtier's robes is a heart that's, that's beating with affection for that God. L- listen, look in verse 12 of this chapter, how he describes his call to go and rebuild Jerusalem. It says, Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, And I told no one, I told no one of what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. You see that language? My God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. It is is that, that love for God that calls him to act in a particular way that he now answers that call. See, understanding God that way makes all the difference in your life in the decisions you make and how you live. It's a very different God than the God of Bill Gates. What God had put into my heart is a God who, a man who knew God and listened to him and followed him wherever he would lead. And it's been said that the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. And I think there's truth in that. And when we think about loving God so that we might love God's people, uh, there's a call to overcome indifference and apathy with love. So because of Nehemiah's love for God, he, he could not be indifferent to to the needs of God's people. He he could not be apathetic to the very thing which God cared for the most. He he could not be unmoved by the desolate condition of Jerusalem. 
when the bad news of Jerusalem came, Nehemiah didn't run off to his palace office and zip off a blog post and tweet uh, of the, the decay of Jerusalem. He, he, uh, he, he didn't sit up in his chair and say, gee, I wish, I wish somebody would do something about, about that, that awful state of Jerusalem. No, he, he acted. He moved through indifference toward love. I like how how J.I. Packer describes Nehemiah's awareness. He says, When the bad news flooded him and set him praying, he soon found himself suspecting what God's vocational call to him was. Faithful souls, says Packer, become quick on the uptake in these matters. You hear what he's saying? Bad news comes, and Nehemiah prays, and he asks God, Lord, what's your will for me in this? I've heard of this situation. What are you calling me to do in this? And he's quick on the uptake to move toward love rather than indifference. He doesn't just say, oh, well, too bad. I'm sorry about that. That's a messy situation. That's really not for me. That's That's not my gift. That's not what I'm called to do. No, he moves. He moves toward it. Have you ever heard uh, someone say, I, I love Jesus, but I'm not so crazy about the church. I really don't like the church. But for Nehemiah, that's impossible, and it should be impossible for every believer that if we truly love God, we will grow to love God's people. For this is where God is at work, amongst his people, for his saving purposes. I know the church is not perfect. I know that well because I'm a part of the church. I, I know the foibles and failings of the church. And yet, like Nehemiah and so many others before him and many after him, we are called to love the church and seek the welfare of God's people. Seth Godin, the modern-day guru of productivity, says that there is one core principle in being productive, in being effective. Here it is. If you've not read the book, I'm going to give it to you in one sentence. He says this, decide what really matters and do it. It's profound, I guess. Decide what really matters and do it. I actually think that principle applies to the distinctive of love. And it's the secret to overcoming indifference. You need to be aware of the needs of God's people and and decide what really matters and then do it. Do it for kingdom purposes. Do it for God's glory. I see that happen all the time around here. But for it to happen, I think you need uh, that to be coupled with this second distinctive we see in Nehemiah. It's that of courage. If, if whereas love must overcome indifference and apathy, courage must overcome fear. And that's what we see in Nehemiah. When the king asked him, why the sadness of heart, Nehemiah? Before speaking, he described his state of being this way. In, in the original language, this would be the best way to capture it. He says, I was exceedingly very much afraid. 
exceedingly very much afraid. The old language says, I was sore afraid. And he's right to be afraid. And I think he's afraid for two very good reasons. One is the nature of the king, and two is the nature of the request that he's making. Regarding this king, Artaxerxes, he was the third son of Xerxes, and we are told by the historians that upon his ascension to the throne, he put his other two brothers to death so as not to have the opportunity to usurp his authority. And I think Nehemiah knew this and understood the, the nature of this king, that he was not one to, to trifle with. And he understood that he was putting his life in danger. He also understood it because of the nature of the request that he's making. And if you know a little about Old Testament history, even if you've read through Ezra before Nehemiah, you know that 20 years ago there was a similar request made of Artaxerxes by the opposition regarding Ezra and his building of the temple. Those who opposed it went to the king and said, you need to stop that building over there. And let us tell you why. And these are the reasons they give in Ezra chapter 4. They say Jerusalem is a wicked and rebellious city. This is from the viewpoint of the opposition and the Persian king. If it was rebuilt, they would not pay tribute or toll, and the royal revenue would be impaired. That to, to rebuild this city in particular would be a dishonor to you, king. For this city was hurtful to kings, and sedition was stirred up in it, which is why it was laid waste in the first place. And if this city is rebuilt, you will have no possession in this province. You will, you will no longer have, have a city that represents you in this province if you rebuild Jerusalem. So Artaxerxes, 20 years earlier, issues a decree to cease building on the temple, and the building stops. And so Nehemiah understands that the request he's making is for the king to reverse his previous decree, which is a precarious place to be. And so there is real danger, and he's right to be afraid, and he responds even still with boldness and courage, and he makes his request. And I would say, I think I think it, it, it was courage that caused him to decide to even use his position of influence for greater kingdom purposes in the first place, even though that might be a great harm to himself. He doesn't remain silent. He speaks. And it was that courage that caused him to do that. I, I, I realize for some of us, you hear this and you say, well, I, I get that. I like Nehemiah. That's great. But I don't hold that kind of influence. I don't have a position like that. Uh, I don't sit in the courts of kings, and I don't sit with the power brokers of the day. I, I want to suggest to you that even still you have an opportunity for great influence that holds tremendous potential for kingdom purposes. But I know also for some of you, you actually do hold positions like this. You have positions of influence and authority. Some of you are successful businessmen and businesswomen and doctors and statesmen and educators and hold positions of leadership in various venues. 
Though that's not true for all of us. Some of us are tradesmen and and mothers and fathers and students or retired or elderly or disabled. Yet, Yet God has put you in a position of influence for kingdom purposes. And that's what kingdom building looks like today. And, and I hope you're asking yourself, even as you listen, where, where, where is that, Lord? What are those positions of influence? Whose life might I speak into? For many of you, it will be as simple as speaking the gospel into an existing relationship or maybe creating a new relationship for that purpose. Or, or maybe for some of you, it'll be for standing up for righteousness or justice, or articulating biblical Christianity in a public forum of some kind. I know for many of you that will require courage and boldness to step outside of your comfort zone to act in such a way for kingdom good. Let me give you an example of the kind of influence I really have in mind here. One author writes about it this way. It happened one cold winter day on a train from Vienna to Venice where I traveled to enjoy the scenic beauty of this unique northern Italian city. A young lady by the name of Joan Zimmerman, an American student from Rockford, Illinois, shared with me her newfound faith in Christ. Her words penetrated my innermost being, and I wondered What was I waiting for when Jesus had already done everything that needed to be done for me? Joan read a portion of Galatians 5, the verses listing the fruits of the Spirit and these attributes. Love, joy, peace struck a profound chord in my longing, lonely, desperate heart. My parents' marriage had ended in divorce, and my own relationships were fragile and more often than not broken. And I deeply longed for love, joy, and peace, as well as for freedom about which the Galatians passage also spoke. And here God was reaching out his hand to me and inviting me to enter into his love, his joy, and his peace through Jesus Christ. Over the course of the months that followed, his invitation proved irresistible. These are the words of Andreas Kostenberger, a New Testament scholar who's done much to deepen our understanding of God's Word, to raise up a generation of pastors to strengthen the church, all because of the influence of a student from Rockford, Illinois, of all places, who sat down on a train going from Vienna to Venice next to this man, young student, at the time a doctoral student from Austria. And out of love and courage, use that position of influence for kingdom building. That's what it looks like, friends. Some of you, when I even talk about that, there's anxiety. The idea of sharing Jesus with my coworker or my ornery neighbor or my difficult family member. 
I would say let Nehemiah encourage you to make the most of every opportunity, though filled with fear, to overcome fear with courage. And let me encourage you to to rightly be about the Lord's work in your workplace and in your home and neighborhood and community. And let me encourage you to cultivate this distinctive of courage. It's the mark of an act of faith. And it leads us to our third distinctive, which is quite simply selflessness. Selflessness. In the remaining verses of this passage, Nehemiah is making his request to rebuild Jerusalem in detail. He's thought deeply about about what would be needed, about any potential obstacles, about official letters and materials and provisions. He's focused his goals and planned thoroughly for their accomplishment and has worked toward that end. And he waited and he prayed and he was ready when the king said, what are you requesting? What are you requesting? You know what's striking about his response? Is that he he responds at all. Uh, I mean, think about it. He, let's be honest. He's in the king's palace. He's in a place of comfort and affluence. His needs as well as his wants are, are more than met, more than sufficiently met. And yet, he, he wants to go to the ruined and rubbled city of his fathers, a city that's been lying in decay for 140 years. He'd rather be there than in the comfort and affluence of the palace. What causes that kind of craziness? I don't think so. Selfless service because of who his God is? Absolutely. So he's resolved to abandon prestige and comfort for a life of danger, suffering, and toil, if only for the purposes of God and for his glory. If that's all it is, Lord, I'm there. Send me. I'll go. The ruins of Zion were more favorable than the splendors of Susa. And so he willingly sets his career aside and his influence, and he trades it in for sorrow and reproach and suffering. Sound familiar? Does to me. We'll get there in a minute. See, he's moved by a desire to serve selflessly kingdom purposes for a greater king with no self-interest, really. How do we do that, honestly? Examine my own life in light of this passage, and I see selfishness at every turn. And I wonder, Lord, what am I missing? Where's that kind of selflessness? I want more of that. I want to grow in that area. I think in some ways it's straightforward. It's putting God first and others second and ourselves last. It's that, surely. It's, uh, I think, found in a phrase Stephen Lee and I were talking about earlier in the week. Uh, a phrase that comes from his previous church. He says, we would always talk this way. He said, move toward need, not comfort. Move toward need, not comfort. That's a good way to think about selfless 
service. How do I do that? I move toward need. When I see a need in the body of Christ, I move toward that, not away from it, not toward my own comfort. That's a good way to sum it up. I mean, I need to ask, where, when was the last time you responded to a kingdom need that way? Maybe you're saying, you know what? I see that. I want that. I recognize I don't have that to the degree I would like to have it in my life. So help me understand how do I do that? Because it's, I try, really. I, I put forth a good effort and good intentions even, and yet... I I fall short. I fall flat. I find myself kind of going back to to indifference and fear and and selfishness. Well, let me give you two answers in, in, in closing. I think the first is found very clearly in this passage. It's the it's the last sentence of this passage. It says, And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of my God was upon me. That's a way of referring to to God's power. The benevolent power of God was upon Nehemiah. And he knew it, and he sensed it, and he understood it, and he interpreted all the events of that day in light of it. It's pretty striking, really. That same hand that brought Israel out of Egypt, that is, that is calling Israel out of Babylon back into the city to rebuild the city and the wall. That same hand, that good hand of God, that sovereign, strong hand of God upon Nehemiah. This is how he understood the world. Friends, to talk like that, listen, it, it, please, is, is a way to describe God's grace. It's a way to describe his undeserved favor that God was working in this man's life in this situation for his purposes out of his kindness and sovereign, gracious, redeeming love. And Nehemiah knew it, and that's how he sums it up. And that's why he talks about it in the first chapter and here, and we'll see in a little bit later in this chapter again. It's his worldview. It was the same for Ezra. If you read 7 and 8, You'll begin to see it repeated again and again and again. It's a worldview. It's a way to understand how God works his grace at work magnificently. It is what carried Nehemiah forward in an arduous undertaking. And it it moved him to act upon his faith, that understanding. It is so for us today. I would ask you, where? How How do I do that, Lord? Help me to do that. Help me understand your grace in such a way that, that you move me beyond fear and indifference to love and courage and selflessness. The second answer I would give you quite simply is the ultimate move toward selfless love is seen in Jesus Christ leaving his rightful place in heaven and stepping into a darkened world to save sinners and redeem a remnant people for himself. The the ultimate act of love, the supreme act of courage, the greatest act of selflessness is seen when the Son of the living God 
humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. When I see that and understand that and, and absorb that, then I'm freed up to live for him and not for myself. Friends, that's what trusting action looks like. Faith in action looks like in our world today for, for us. That we would be marked by these distinctives. That we would have belief in a God whose hand was upon Christ. Sending him to die. So that he might make you son and daughter. And understanding that makes every difference, that kind of God, in your life and in your decisions. Please pray with me. Father, we, uh, we stand before you, Lord. We, we look at your word. We see Nehemiah. We see how you worked so beautifully and powerfully to accomplish your saving and redeeming purposes. And, and we just stand in awe of your grace, of your love, of your character, of your beauty, of your loveliness. And, and we behold you. And Lord, we genuinely want to follow you where you would call us beyond ourselves beyond fear or anxiety beyond apathy lord that you might use us for your kingdom building purposes and for your glory in christ's name amen